0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now get 15% off your first order at burrow.com/acast. That's 15% off at burrow.com/acast.
2: Hey, Chris here. I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to telling stories about the environment. So much so that I'm doing a PhD on the subject. You can help me out by completing a short survey about the episodes you've heard so far. If you go to rememberthewild.org.au, you'll find a link to these surveys where you can pick an episode and respond to the questions. Your thoughts help us understand how people respond to stories like these and how we can do better work. Thanks to everyone who has offered responses so far. We really appreciate your feedback.
0: This is The Guardian. It's tiny, bouncy, and has horny head lumps. Welcome to Look at Me. I'm Ray Johnston. When it comes to Australian native animals, everyone thinks about koalas and kangaroos and drop bears and wombats. But what about the creepy ones, the niche ones, the ones with groupies, the ones that don't make it onto coins or bluey? That's what we're here to talk about with my co-host and a nature nerd, Chris McCormack from Remember the Wild. Hey, Chris, how are you going?
2: G'day, Ray. I'm, I'm not too bad. How are you?
0: Pretty good. Pretty excited to hear what animal you're going to be telling me about today.
2: Yes, well, I'm going to be telling you about columbula.
0: Columbula. Columbula. Calimbula. That rings a bell, but I don't know why. It's one of those facts I've pushed into the deep recesses of my sponge brain, but I can't extract it yet.
2: Sponge brain. That's quite an image. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> today we are talking to Australia's absolute expert in Calembola. She is, for lack of a better phrase, the queen of Kalimbala.
3: Wow. <laughs> My name is Penelope Greenslade. I do have a PhD, so I like to be addressed as a doctor. It means that people respect <laughs> me more, curiously enough. I was born in 1937, and so I lived the early part of my life during the Second World War. Looking back on it, I know that I was always destined to be a scientist. When I was about seven, I had a little notebook and I wrote in it all sorts of questions I had about why birds had feathers. So I think that was a beginning of trying to look at evolution. Oh, that's beautiful. I love people's origin stories. This is the best.
2: So that's Dr Penelope Greenslade and she is Australia's expert on Calembola. And we'll hear more about Penelope soon but first, let's let let's talk a little bit more about kalembala themselves because, Ray, you think you know what these are? You think you've got some kind of vague memory of them?
0: I do. I think I do. I, I can't be sure. I'm hoping that you can give me some more facts that might trigger some knowledge.
2: Yeah, well, that's what I'm, I'm here to do. So let me describe what they look like first. Kalembala look a little bit like an insect. They have six short little legs. But what's interesting is they also have these little inflatable sacks or tubes which they can push out of their body.
3: When it pushes its tubes out on a smooth surface, it can stick there. Also, if the animal's a bit dehydrated and you put it on a film of water, it will extrude these arms and it'll drink. So it's
0: small enough to be able to sit on the top of the water... Which makes me think it's an insect, because I can't imagine any other animal being able to just sit on the top of the film on top of the water.
2: An insect,
0: maybe. I'm fascinated by by these um, these tubes that get pushed out and the extrudable sacs. <laughs> It's a fascinating thing.
2: Um, Yeah, so they've got these freaky tubes. They're like inflatable. They make me think of, you know, those, um, you know, those like inflatable blow-up people that wave and get your attention. They make me think of that.
0: The Wobbly Men. The Wobbly Men outside the car yards. I don't know if that's their actual scientific name, but we're going to go with Wobbly Men for the purposes of this podcast. That'll do.
2: (laughs) It makes me think of that. They've got them f- coming out of the- and they can drink through them. It's like elephant trunks, maybe. I don't know. It's pretty crazy. Well,
0: They sound handy and purposeful. They're not just there for no reason, which is good news. But you say they're not insects.
2: No, they're not insects, but they're close. Okay, you're close. Uh, here's another clue.
3: Calimbala are classified as entognathous hexapods, which actually just means that their mouth parts are inside their mouth and they have three pairs of legs. And columbula do not have wings and they're soft-bodied.
2: What difference does that make, that you've got your mouth parts inside your head as opposed to outside your head? you have
3: to ask a columbula that (laughs) because I don't know. My mouth parts are inside my head and I find it quite convenient. (laughs) Convenient. Insects, though have mouth
0: parts outside their head, don't they?
2: That's right. Yeah, they've got their mandibles.
0: So, if if the collembola has its mouth parts inside its head and it's got a soft body, so it doesn't have an exoskeleton then. This is so weird. What what is it then?
2: So we've got one more clue, Ray, and this is where they derive their common name. So we've talked about Calimbala, but this is where they derive a name that might be more familiar to
3: you. There's a structure called a jumping organ, which is actually a modified pair of legs. And this jumping organ is normally kept flexed under the body and caught with three little hooks. And when the animal decides to jump... It also uses its muscles to compress its body and the hooks release the jumping organ, which hits the ground with a great force, propels the animal into the air where it turns over and over.
0: Wow! So it's jumping all over the place as well. It's like a little jumping spider, but it's not... Oh, gosh. This It really does sit kind of all by itself, this animal, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah it does, it's 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 really unique there's a lot of them, they're, they're a really diverse group of animals um, but yeah, they're, they're creatures unto their own um, and the this jumping organ it sort of acts like a spring and it's at the end of the animal's body
0: So where it's ta- ah I see where you're going here so this is a springtail.
2: These are the springtails, Collembola, or springtails.
0: Wonderful! They're such um, interesting-looking little creatures, aren't they?
2: <laughs> They're really diverse. You know, Dr. Penelope. She said to me. She said to me. I said, "Can you describe what they look like?" And she said, "Well, there are the fat, podgy ones, and there are the the, the other ones." <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, okay,
0: <laughs> Okay. so I've searched for springtail photos online and I am looking at one right now. They're kind of like a tiny little hairy brown grain of rice with hairy little spider-like legs and an internal mouth.
2: Yeah, that's right. And look, you know, really you can only classify them by how Penelope has described them because... It, they are they actually there are just so many of them, and they all like superficially look very different, like insects, I suppose,
0: yeah. So it wouldn't be an episode of Look At Me if you didn't describe to me some horrific reproductive cycle horror. Chris, what have you got for me with the springtail?
2: <laughs> I love that my job has just been reduced to <laughs> telling you weird sex acts of animals. Um, <laughs> okay, well, I asked, I asked Penelope, I asked Penelope, what, you know, what's the deal here? How do these things reproduce? How do they continue their genetic lineages?
3: Now, some... Springtail species are parthenogenetic. That means all females and they just produce fertile eggs.
2: But there are also various other ways that different species of columbola try and get the female interested.
3: Some of them have hooks and other types of structures on their antennae and they can clasp the female um, and sort of do a little dance with her. (laughs) And in fact, one species quite common in Australia. The males actually end up standing on her head, do quite a bit of a dance around. And uh, what they do is they deposit a sperm on a stalk (laughs) and they dance around and get the female all excited and then um, press her to sort of, um, so that she has her abdomen over this um, stalk sperm um, and takes it in. Look,
0: I never want to kink shame anyone, but that's a really interesting way to be aroused, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine ever wanting someone to just, like, hook into me, stand dancing on my head with some sperm at the end of a stalk.
2: So it's sort of like, <laughs> okay, my sperm is on the stalk over there. I'm going to stand. I don't know. It's, it's sort of like <laughs> it's weird, like I'm trying The male's trying to. I always put myself in their shoes. I'm going to stop doing that. Okay. The male's trying to. (laughs) The male's trying to kind of like seduce her to come and I guess walk over this sperm that is on the stalk, and he's doing that by acrobatically flipping up onto her head. It's pretty freaking phenomenal.
0: I'm starting to see why some versions of this wonderful little creature have evolved to just avoid this entirely and just have eggs ready to go because this sounds pretty bad. Sounds
2: like a hassle, doesn't it? Yes. Here's another way, another strategy for springtail species for males to get the females interested.
3: It has on its head a little lump with some horns Uh, Nobody's actually being able to observe what's happening. At any rate, he must use this somehow to get the female all interested in him.
0: So he uses a horny headlump and we don't know how.
2: Yeah, I mean, self-explanatory, I think.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing more attractive than a horny headlump.
2: The strategy of peacocking in invertebrates is just awesome, (laughs) you know.
0: It's kind of sad in a way that humans don't go to this much effort. Like, let's evolve to have claws and hooks and lumps on our heads and horns and dances and put our sperm in interesting places. We don't do any of that.
2: Well, I certainly don't.
0: <laughs> we swipe right or left, whatever it is, I don't know. <laughs> All right, back to Springtails. Back to Springtails.
2: So, we've heard a little bit about springtails now, and, but it's worth us talking a bit more about Dr. Penelope Greenslade because, as I said, she's Australia's expert and she's an amazing, amazing person who started you know, her university uh, career, her academic career back in the, the 50s. So, Penelope went to Cambridge in the 1950s and she actually told me that she remembers uh, one of her lecturers pointing out the CO2 emission rises at the time and saying, look at this rise in emissions. Wow. Yeah.
0: There's two incredible things in that sentence. Not only that someone noticed the rise in CO2 emissions, but that a woman was studying at Cambridge in the 50s. This is amazing.
2: Yes, that's right. It's two pretty phenomenal things. And, you know, she said that the academic at the time said, mark my words, this is going to be a problem for you young people. He said that to Penelope at that time. Penelope's now in her 80s.
0: (gasps) Oh, oh, that's depressing, Chris. What what have you done? (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Penelope Greenslade is my new hero. I'm just going to put that out there. She sounds phenomenal. What a trailblazer. Yeah, she's a bit of a boss. I I love her. I think she's awesome.
3: (laughs) When I got to university, Of course, there were 20 men to every one woman at Cambridge at the time. All the women sat in the front row in the lectures, except for me, because I don't like to be a sheep. I was quite surprised at the attitude to girls at university. Some people said to me, why are you here? Some people said, oh, I'm surprised you want to do science. I had realised by that time... As that, you had to do more if you were a woman than a man.
0: It is kind of disheartening how little has changed over the years and how those attitudes can still be quite pervasive. And you know, even though we do have much higher rates now of women studying science and we're slowly getting to the point where you know little girls don't think that science is just for boys anymore, you know, once they finish study and get into the workforce, they're still working within institutions and organisations that have been set up in the 50s and have have been set up with those old mindsets. So it's still a tough slog for women in science, unfortunately. Yeah,
2: and, you know, the thing with Penelope's story is like she's an amazing person because she's managed to do all of what she's done against Mm. the odds. But think about how many amazing people could have been doing work like that but just weren't given that opportunity and they weren't able to.
0: So I'm curious, how did Penelope get interested in spring tales of all things after she left university?
2: Yeah, funnily enough, the way she got started in her career, it, it wasn't through stuff at institutions like Cambridge. It was in the antipodes of what was then the British Protectorate of Solomon Islands. And as a young woman in her early 20s, she started getting interested in the soil fauna of that area.
3: My husband, John... Had applied for some money for me to work on soil animals because he could see this was a big need in the Solomons, nobody knew anything about them. He was studying coconut pests.
2: What's soil fauna?
3: Well, if you go to your garden and look in your compost heap and give it a bit of a shake, you will see all sorts of little creatures coming up uh, off. Uh, out of the um, compost and you will see they include mites, springtails as well as the bigger ones such as worms, centipedes, um, slaters, uh, earwigs etc. But we were interested in the smaller ones because there are so many of them, they're so beautiful and nobody had ever looked at them before.
2: What I love is that to Penelope and her world Worms and slaters are the big stuff?
3: Yes.
0: What other people would consider tiny little animals. She's like, yeah, no, we can see this with the naked eye. We don't need microscopes. We we don't need to go, ooh, what is that, and chase after it. It's there and it's visible. So, uh, in comparison, the springtails are small. You know, we've, we've talked about that they're small, but how small are they?
2: Look, I've I seen a few of them. She showed me a few of them and... I guess with the naked eye, you just see these little specks, a bit like fleas, or even smaller.
3: That small?
2: Yeah, but then under a microscope, you, you can see how beautiful they are and how complex they are.
3: So we started sampling saw fauna. We were collecting fascinating animals from rainforest, and one of the people on the expedition was called Peter Lawrence, who was a specialist in springtails. So he started me off on looking at springtails.
0: I love that they just started looking for animals that no one had really documented before, no one had described before. You get it from her. It's it's that, you know, we were out discovering these things and writing them down for the first time. Obviously, that doesn't mean that no one knew they existed before. Indigenous people all around the world have known about every single creature, microscopic or not, well before it was ever written down or documented or described in the way that we talk about it now.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, what we're talking about here is Western science and describing things for Western science and, this und- and understanding from that perspective. And just keep in mind, Ray, that while Penelope's doing this work, scratching around in the soil on the island, there's probably 100 other British couples on the island. And the wives of the men working for the government were leading that very colonial lifestyle, having tea and cake and in sort of fancy villas and things (laughs) like that. And she's out there on her hands and knees, crawling through the bush and jungle looking for microscopic fauna.
0: They're having tea and cake and going, what is this microscopic dot on my hand? I guess we'll never know. And she's going, let's find out. (laughs)
2: She wasn't just exploring springtails. She also had uh, her first child while she was on the island.
3: Francis was born in a nissen hut, which was just near the coast, so you could lie there and hear the waves, which was very nice. My father was an obstetrician and gynecologist, so he wasn't at all happy for me to stay in the Solomons while I was giving birth to his first grandchild. In those days, you just accepted Things. I mean, these days I would have get, got a lot more stressed about it, but it didn't really worry me.
2: It's pretty amazing. Like, she's, she, you know, she grew up in London, she went to Cambridge, and now she's in a hut on the beach in Solomon Islands giving birth to her first child as a 23-year-old.
0: Imagine being that chill about just giving birth in a hut on the beach. Oh, well, this is it. This is the way that it is.
2: <laughs> I'd be freaking out.
0: It shows her resilience, doesn't it? She's just someone that goes, this is it. This is the lot that I have. This is what I'm dealing with. I'm going to thrive regardless. She's absolutely excelled at everything she's put her mind to. Why would birthing be any different? Yeah, for sure. So she's taking care of this baby. She's documenting never-before-seen springtails on Solomon Islands. And describing animals is important as well because that's how we can include it for policy, for anything that's rare or endangered. Yeah. Yeah, look,
2: they do play important roles in their ecosystems and they can play a role in telling us the health of ecosystems, which is why it's important to know these species.
3: Yeah, Wilson said little things run the world. The big things are actually dependent on the little things. Well, in fact, they're part of the decomposer cycle. So they feed on microorganisms, fungi, and sometimes things like nematodes, the protozoa, and they contribute to decomposing organic matter and providing nutrients to the plants.
0: Makes perfect sense now. This all fits in. They're decomposing things. Maybe we can train them to decompose plastics and then they'll have a good place in the future. <laughs>
2: it sounds like a horrible place. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Springtails. Keep eating leaf matter and, and whatever else it is that you need.
2: As much as the average person wouldn't know what a springtail is, and you, wouldn't know, you certainly wouldn't know what species you're looking at, knowing the different species of springtails as, as a society helps us to understand the health of ecosystems.
3: You can use culembula as indicators of disturbance. If you go to a bit of bush and you say, this looks like a nice bit of bush, let's do some sampling here and you find there are a lot of exotic species there, you say, oh, it's not so good after all. If you go to a bit of bush and you don't find any exotic species, you say, yippee, this is worth protecting. So
2: what Penelope's saying is that if you have exotic species, if you find a bunch of exotic species, introduced species in the soil of an area, it tells you that it's been sort of disturbed. It's not It's not as in quite a, as natural a state as it might have been. If you go to an area and you look at the soil and all of the species you're getting are just native springtails, ones that have been there for yonks, then you know, okay, there, there hasn't been much disturbance here because there's not the kind of things that, you know, nothing's brought the exotic species in and there's not the kind of, you know, materials that those species uh, live on.
0: Right.
2: In your garden, it would be mostly exotic species, if not all exotic species. But out in the bush, you'd expect to find uh, that proportion to be shifting in favour of the native species.
0: Would it be a case of if we do plant our gardens with native species, we will have more springtails? Do they move to areas where it's a better environment for them? Or is it just that they happen to be where it's the natural order of things? Uh, Think of it like
2: contamination. Like if you're contaminating a natural area with introduced materials, be they living matter, like, you know, new plants and things like that. If you're bringing in different soil, if you're putting fertilisers in the ground that might have, you know, foreign entities in it, you know, you're, you're basically contaminating the area with exotic, potentially exotic species because these things are tiny and their eggs are tiny, right?
0: Yeah. Gosh, and there's, there'd really, in the modern world, be no way to avoid doing that.
2: It's pretty hard, yeah. You'd have to nuke nuke everything.
0: If you're doing... Any kind of home gardening whatsoever. You know, are there reliable sources of fertilisers and soils that are just full of springtails, as opposed to foreign introduced little microorganisms? Like that would be so hard to to do.
2: Yeah, look, it's it. it well, it is because there's different things living here now. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that that doesn't that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like like exotic springtails aren't necessarily bad because they're in your garden. It's just an indicator, you know. If if you find those same species out in the bush, you say, okay, this this place is is not in quite as a natural state as it might have been. Like we're not we're not saying you know springtails from overseas are bad. Go back to where you came from. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs>
0: We're not saying F off, we're full to the foreign springtails. No.
2: No, that's wrong. No,
0: we're saying we've we've boundless planes to share to the foreign (laughs) springtails.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot...
0: So after having the baby and working in Solomon Islands, what happened then with Penelope and the springtails?
3: Then John got a job with CSIRO in Australia as a specialist ecologist on ants, and we went to live in Adelaide. And this Peter Lawrence said to me, you can be queen of all the Calembola in Australia because (laughs) there was no one else working on them at the time. And then I got attached to the South Australian Museum and started working on Spring Tales of Australia. And we had a big room downstairs under the house, so I made that my lab. I managed to get quite a few grants to support the work, but of course by that time I had three small children. So, it, you know, I, it wasn't a full-time job.
0: Wow. Running her own lab, three small kids. She found her niche, that's for sure. Talk about niche animal and niche area of study.
2: Yeah. So Penelope, she's she's sort of been associated with different institutions over her career, but by and large, she's worked out of her home. You know, even today when I went to visit Penelope, she has a lab Basically, set up in the back of her house, in in the front of her house, she's just you know she has papers everywhere. She's these beautiful old books, you know. It, it really is, um, it really is something to see.
0: Talk about a trendsetter working from home before we had to work from
3: home.
2: Yes, she, she did, whether she wanted to or not.
3: <laughs> and of course, it was very difficult for married women to get a job in.
2: Australia. Why do you why do you say married women?
3: Well. In 1968, when we came to Australia, if you were employed uh, by CSRO as a scientist and you were a woman, if you got married, you were sacked. Wow. That was absolutely the rule. They also didn't allow women to become lab assistants because the theory was that if you were a lab assistant working for a man scientist, you could be seen around the town or in the field sitting beside your boss, man and woman, uh, in a CSIRO truck, and it looked suspicious. And in fact, there had been a complaint on the part of a member of the public when they saw a man and a woman in a CSIRO truck going around their fieldwork. The fragile egos
0: of men driving women to run labs out of their homes. And
3: they're still kicking butt. One of the CSIRO scientists I knew at the time told me, oh, he said, I had an assistant uh, vacant position and I had two very good candidates. So one was a man and one was a woman. And he said I had to appoint a man because the woman wouldn't have been able to open the gates. When we were doing field work.
2: They're difficult gates, aren't they, Penelope? Have you ever had trouble with you've got quite a heavy gate, I must admit, <laughs> coming into you. I actually struggled. I came up to your house, it took me about two minutes to get in. I can't imagine how you do it. God
3: Well, ever after this I made pretty good care that any time I was in the field I could jolly well open every single gate that we came across. This is a woman that
0: gave birth in a hut on a beach. I'm certain she could have opened gates. I
2: really did struggle with her gate. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It was like a big, heavy sort of one of those old cast iron kind of gates. I was like, how the hell She probably
0: did it intentionally out of spite. (laughs) And when I build my own gate, it will be the heaviest gate you've ever seen and you won't be able to open my gate. What a ridiculous excuse, though. They really were clutching at straws not to hire her because she was clearly brilliant. It's, it's amazing.
2: It's, you know, it's, it's fucked. <laughs> it's just fucked. It's fucked. Yeah, look, I think I think we can tell by now, Ray, that Penelope is not the kind of person that would have let that kind of crap stop her.
0: Absolutely not.
2: Yeah, look, she's she's made an enormous contribution. She's, as I said, she's had a hand in describing some uh, basically half of the known species in Australia. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's massive, and she's she's written hundreds and hundreds of papers. Um, she's supervised students from around the world. Um, and she's just, she's had an enormous impact and it's all really been off her own back.
0: It sounds like it's driven her, if anything. Every time there's an obstacle put in her place, she seems to find a way around it and she's so determined and just keeps going. She doesn't know how to quit. I don't want her to quit. Has she quit? Has she retired now? Is she still studying them?
2: She's absolutely still working. Um, I can tell you that because I've been to her house and I've seen the mountain of papers on her massive, beautiful old table in her front room and she's just shifting through them and it was, it was incredible. But she's absolutely still going and she did something fantastic last year that is really worth sharing.
3: Now, recently I was uh, collaborating with some Italians and we were describing some new species from the Antarctic continent, too, actually. And um, uh, they said, what do you want to call them? And I said, let's call one after Greta Thunberg. And they agreed with me. So we called it Frisia Gritai.
2: Wow. I love the image of Penelope as a young woman sitting in, in her undergraduate classes, being told about the threat of CO2 emissions in the 50s, now naming a species, you know, a part of her career, her long career in identifying Calimbala, now naming a species after another young woman who so many decades later is absolutely leading the charge on action against climate change. It's it's an incredible story.
3: The reason I'm carrying on is because what else would I do? I don't want to go and sit... And drink coffee every morning with my neighbours, or play golf, or what? What else do they do? <laughs> Go to the pokies, play the pokies, for instance. Um, this is far more interesting. But I also think it's um, I'm making a contribution to protecting the environment if I can. And um, yeah, I always said to the children. You really need to make a contribution to society or to the the world um, rather than do a job that is trading in commodities and such like. (laughs) Now you better cut that out because that (laughs) will offend a lot of
0: people. I love it. Offending people while working selflessly in the pursuit of science.
3: Well, actually, I've been quite selfish (laughs) because I've done exactly what I want to do all my life, so... Well, I don't think it's so wonderful because I've just done what I wanted to do.
0: I'm so grateful for the work that Dr Penelope Greenslade has done. And I am so grateful to you, Chris, for introducing me to her. What a champion.
2: Yeah, she, she holds a special place in the history books, that's for sure so much so that my organization remember the wild has actually created an award in her honor the penelope greenslade award will provide financial support to early career researchers in the biological sciences who identify as female it's a very small way that we hope to help aspiring scientists navigate systemic biases and contribute meaningfully like penny has Check out rememberthewild.org.au for more details on who's eligible and how to apply.
0: Amazing, that sounds great. Good luck to all of the applicants. Look At Me is supported by the Australian Conservation Foundation. It's hosted by me, Ray Johnston, on Darug Country and Chris McCormack on Dja, Dja Country. It's also produced by Chris from Remember the Wild and Jane Lee and Camilla Hannan at Guardian Australia. Camilla also did the sound design. And on our next episode, we'll meet a punk that can live without its body. See you then.